before Stranger Things and before the X-Files, there was Eerie Indiana. The centre of weirdness on the planet, Eerie followed Marshall Teller and his friend Simon as they encountered lots of creepy things in their small town. And although it only ran for one season in 1991, the show has since gone on to have a cult following from millions of fans who wish there were more than just 19 episodes. I'm Genevieve and as a massive fan myself, 12-year-old me is very excited to say the star of the show is here with me to talk about his life after that thing he did. So please welcome Omri Katz. Good morning, Omri. How are you? Doing all right. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. Uh, I, I mean, I say morning. It is very early for you. It's a reasonable 3pm for me here in London. But for you in California, it is an eye-watering 7am. How are you functioning? Because I want to stress that I would have been perfectly happy to have given you a couple more hours of bed. <laughs> but you were like, no, let's do it at 7am. No, I'm uh, typically I'm up like 5.30, 6 o'clock every day. But I am going to admit that I did uh, snooze a little longer today and uh, woke up maybe... 25 minutes ago. That's why I was like, um, could I have an extra 10 minutes so I can just <laughs> make some coffee, you know, like, oops. I hit the snooze button a lot. Yeah, I am not. Uh, I, I just, I don't need to. I, I don't know why. Actually, I got a dog. I had a dog. She passed away, but I had a dog and I had to wake up every morning to walk her. And ever since then, we're talking at least... 12 plus years ago. Ever since then, I just wake up at like 5.30, 6 o'clock. Oh, you can't get out of the habit. And I go to bed at like midnight. It's just like five hours of sleep is all I need, I guess. So no alarms, no nothing. I just wake up and I'm like, okay, let's get the day started. I was going to ask you about your dogs, actually, because I spotted um, I spotted a lot of pictures of your dogs on your Instagram and I noticed that they were all pit bulls. Yep. I'm a cat person, so I know they've got a bit of a, a bad reputation, but a lot of people say- I'm an Omri Cats person. But um, but um, boom. Sorry. Uh, but, uh, a lot of people say that pit bulls are the most misunderstood breed of dog. Would you agree? Um, I guess so. I, I think people in general misunderstand animals. Like you got to remember animals are instinctual and uh, they're going to have certain wild traits about them. So pit bulls typically are just not like aggressive dogs. Like they just want to go maul people, even though they get a reputation of that type of behavior, but they're terriers. So they're really, they're hunters. Yeah, I, I think obviously upbringing has a lot to do with it. But yeah, I mean, I guess you could say they're misunderstood. They just kind of have a a gruesome look, I guess, to some degree for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. They just look, yeah. you know, they have that scowl and they're just big and strong and muscular looking. So I think people are just intimidated off the bat. I got to say my last girl, she had not aggressive tendencies, but she had a bit of a spunk to her. She was a little, she, she could be a little wild. So I had to like, she, <laughs> she, well, she just kept me on my toes. Like my first pit bull, like I could just let Rome free. No worries. Kids, this, that. Oh, actually my other dog too. Kids. Great. But sometimes with like males, she just didn't like guys and oh. she would just almost kind of hunt them down, not go for them, but just give them a, a good old, like, don't come near me or I will. <laughs> I can make some comment about women and men there, but I shall refrain. <laughs> no, hey, please, please. I, let's, let's not go there. Don't get me started. No. It's okay. too early in the morning. <laughs> oh, okay. Time is of the essence. Let's get down to business and enter the nostalgia zone. Let's do it. First of all, we have to start with your first TV role as JR and Sue Ellen's son, John Ross, in the classic That Was Dallas for eight seasons until it ended in 1991. And I know you were quite young when you joined the show. I think you were about seven at the time. But I read that Larry Hagman really took you under his wing over the eight seasons. That must have been epic. Yes, 100%. It almost was like a secondary family to me. They really accepted me, took me under their wing. And uh, it was just kind of that environment. But at the same time, you're so young, you don't really understand what's going on. I mean, the whole movie business in general for, I think, child actors, at least for me, I can speak, is just kind of like one big facade or one kind of like long dream. You just kind of don't 
grasp it, it doesn't become reality, even though it is like uh, literally when I try to flash back, I'm just kind of like dumbfounded and <laughs> did that really happen or did it not? So kind of really weird to wrap your head around it when you're a young, young lad, as you guys say. <laughs> One of my treasured possessions, and I know listeners won't be able to see this, so I'll describe it as I show you, is my signed Bank of Larry Hagman $10,000 bill. I don't know if you've got one of these, but he gave me this back in 2012 when I interviewed him for the reboot of Dallas. Uh, it has his face on it, where you traditionally see the president, and the serial code on it is his date of birth. Yeah, uh, And in his later years, Larry didn't shake hands with people he probably know, um, as he had been a bit poorly and had a weakened immune system. So he used to bump fists with people instead. And almost by way of an apology, this $10,000 bill was something that he gave every journalist he spoke to on the promo tour, which I thought was just so brilliant. I now have it. It's my, my piece of Larry. Awesome. I got to say, yeah, he used to dish a lot of those out when we were at like every year at our rap parties. Oh, I don't he feel so always, now. Well, no, I mean, still, <laughs> still. You know, that was his signature move. He was just like, you know, at the party, he'd be making it rain constantly. <laughs> so <laughs> at the end of the day, it's all paper, right? It so is. He actually like, says. Screw it. Here you go. <laughs> it says on here, this note isn't worth the paper it's printed on. So it's very true. Yeah. Um, yeah. So after Dallas ended, you went straight into Erie, Indiana where you, of course, starred as Marshall Teller, a teen who moves from New Jersey to the small town of Erie, the centre of weirdness in the world, where you encounter things like Bigfoot, werewolves, intelligent dogs trying to take over the world, and mummies that came out of the TV. I mean, so much to unpack there. Uh, but the first thing I want to highlight is Joe Dante's involvement. A legend in the horror and sci-fi genres, he directed, of course, Gremlins, The Burbs, The Howling, Inner Space, loved that film, as well as five episodes of Eerie Indiana, and also served as a creative consultant. Were you aware of how much of a big deal it was for Joe to be working on the show? I had no idea. I, I'd never even heard of Joe Dante at the time. I was not very intertwined or involved, or I guess knowledge-based in film and the film industry. I kind of got lucky just being brought into the industry and uh, not brought. Obviously, I earned my way to some extent, but it just kind of was a job and I did it and I wasn't like super fascinated with everything behind it. Once I started working on Eerie and starting to see what this show, how the show was presented and who he was and its creative and the people I got to work with, like actors that I was familiar with that I'd seen on screen, then I really started to notice like, oh, wow, how fortunate am I? And um, speaking of, I've been doing these conventions over the last couple of years. And sure enough, the last one, I got to see Joe. Oh, wow. And um, I haven't seen him in, I want to say, minimum 20 years and I spoke with him maybe twice in the last 20 years. So uh, it was really great to catch up. I wish I had it near me, but he gave me a bunch of pictures of us from Erie, Indiana. Wow. He was like, here, you want these? I was like, absolutely. <laughs> so um, it was great to see him. He is like the biggest kid. And uh, yeah, I'm super lucky that I got to experience that opportunity. And I did, uh, you know, I did matinee with him as well. Yes. So. Yeah. So we'll talk about your conventions um, a little bit later, but um, sure. Erie, Indiana originally ran in 1991-92 in the US, but it didn't come over here to England until 1993. Uh, and I was 12 when I watched it and I was going through a bit of a horror phase. So I loved it. And I vividly remember watching the first episode and being totally creeped out just by the theme music before the program even started. Uh, but that first episode, Forever Wear, which as a reminder for listeners, was the episode where you discover your neighbours have been staying young for the past 30 years by storing themselves in giant Tupperware containers. Uh, just so clever and just set the tone for the rest of the series. And as it was the pilot, when you were making it, were you thinking, this is something special, it has to get picked up? Or did you ever think, actually, this is a bit different, the network might not want to take a risk on this? Uh, no. Again, I was just kind of, I guess, too young, naive, inexperienced. I do have to admit that the funnest production I ever worked on was Erie, Indiana. I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, you're like a kid in a candy store. Every week, it's a new episode, new sets, new actors, something bizarre and weird. I don't think I realized until I saw the pilot, till it was edited and finished with all the 
music and the cuts and everything, like what a weird, spooky, fun show to be working on. It's so weird when you're filming something, you just kind of don't really, it's, maybe it's hard for some people to really visualize what the finished product is because mm. you're just, you're doing scene over scene, you're doing, you know, many different angles, everything gets repetitive. So you kind of might get lost in translation there somewhere. And then all of a sudden it's all pieced together and you have this like remarkable, amazing thing to watch. So yeah, I guess I didn't really realize until um, I saw the first episode and then sure enough, right after that, they picked us up for a bunch more. And unfortunately, you know, we only did one season. It got discontinued, and I've only heard a couple rumors. Quote me if I'm wrong, but uh, I think budgets, a lot of those episodes were very expensive to make. Yeah, Joe, I had a, an interview with Joe, and he said that, like, the art direction went way over budget every episode. <laughs> way over budget. And they were, like, elaborate just amazing sets, the details, everything, really a lot of uh, a lot of creativity went into all of those episodes. So and then the other one was obviously uh, here in the States, we were up against 60 Minutes, which was like for 20 or 30 years, the number one show um, that was a hard time slot to beat. I guess they felt like this show had such great quality that it could you know, beat out 60 minutes, but um, no. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, so I, I watched it again last week and I was really surprised at how well it still holds up today. Bearing in mind, this was before X-Files, before Goosebumps and a show primarily made for kids, but it wasn't a Saturday morning kids show. It was primetime TV and it wasn't just a, a kids show, you know, apart from the fact that Joe directed it like a movie and it was shot on film rather than like a traditional TV show. The writing and the humour is just so sophisticated and sharp. It was never patronising. And as an adult now, I appreciate the in-jokes, the tributes to old horror and monster movies. And I never noticed at the time, but there were serious topics too on the show. Like watching it back now, there's like Simon's relationship with his parents, his dad cheating on his mum, all these things that I think just completely went over my head watching it. But now I watch it and he's like... Actually, this, Simon's like tragic. <laughs> right? Poor kid. He's practically an orphan. He like lives with us. No, you're you're so right. And I think, um, you know, us as children don't really, we just kind of overlook a lot of the uh, serious nature that some of these shows, uh, let's just talk about Eerie, kind of had just because, you know, we're kind of more fascinated with things that are visual or things that stimulate us. And we don't really have the experience from real world matters. Well, some kids do, some kids don't. But I, I guess I could say I grew up in a somewhat middle class, healthy environment. So yeah, I kind of didn't really pay attention to a lot of that stuff too. Uh, keep in mind, I was only 15. So I was still, yeah, I was still very young as well. And not much life experience mm -hmm. other than growing up on set. But if I may say, for a kid's show, the acting was so good. <laughs> it's not hammy like you see in kids programming today. I'm thinking like the Disney type show, like Hannah Montana. You don't cringe at all watching it now. <laughs> and uh, and there's even an appearance from a young Toby Maguire. Yep. It's a lovelorn ghost as well. Yeah. Yeah. Daniel Harris. Uh, she was another young guest appear. Um, Nikki Cox. Yep. As well. Yeah. Yeah. I think... I have to refresh my memory. I'm like six episodes in. I started watching it and just kind of, because I didn't watch it for so long. First off, I hate watching myself on TV. Um, I appreciate you saying the acting was great, but I look at it and I say, God, why did they cast me? <laughs> but I guess I had something. So um, yeah, I have to go back and revisit. Yeah. Well, I mean, why did they cast you in that interview with, with Joe? I heard he was very complimentary of you saying he thought you were perfect and he batted for you when it came around to casting. But he also said that you weren't particularly enamored with doing the narrations on the show. Could you shed some light on that? I, I can't shed any light on that because you just it's totally caught. Yeah, you caught me off guard there. <laughs> Um, I don't remember that. I do remember the audition process was pretty hectic. Um, there was a lot of people up for it. I probably auditioned like minimum five times, if not more. Um, but I think there was easily like 100, 200 people up for it initially. And then wow. it came down to uh, like three of us. 
And from what I recall, I believe Jonathan Brandis was one of the last three. Oh, okay. And uh, yeah, yeah, I guess they chose me. I don't know why still, but uh, (laughs) I'm grateful. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about a few episodes. Um, Because although the stories were so fantastical, there was also an element of plausibility about them that would make you think, actually, if you had a heart transplant, Maybe you could take on some of the characteristics of the donor, or maybe we are just mindlessly buying things we don't need on credit cards and selling our souls. And maybe I could actually preserve myself in giant Tupperware. Um, which which story resonated with you most? Oh, can't you tell? I, I am constantly sleeping in Tupperware. I'm actually 247 <laughs> years old. So um, here I am looking about 47. It works. <laughs> it works. Uh, you know, I'm living proof. Yeah, I don't know. Like, you know, there was the episode where everything gets lost in the underground world. Yes. And like... That's plausible as well, right? It's plausible that everything that gets lost disappears into a hole. Sure. It's kind of like when you're like, where are my sunglasses for an hour? And then you're like, oh, they've been here the whole time. My bad. Like I said before, though, like each set was very elaborate and very detailed and just super fun to work on because it was literally like being in a playground. Everything was very unique and different. And it was exciting because every week we got to do something really different. I have to say my favorite episode is definitely the pilot. I think part of it was just being on a new production with new people coming together, creating something beautiful, you know, complete strangers coming together and making something really beautiful. So that that episode really stood out for me. And uh, yeah, there was just something about that one. Also, the last episode where we go... Uh, that was very meta, that yes, episode. Yes, exactly. But super cool. <laughs> so this is uh, Reality Takes a Holiday, yeah. where Marshall wakes up and finds that he everyone starts calling him Omri. <laughs> and all his family are all the actors and actresses. Um, and it's all like a ruse. <laughs> Uh, to kind of kill you off, really, by Dash X. I don't want to spoil it for people. But yeah, you could see where where maybe it was going towards the show being cancelled. Um, that's why that was the last episode of the season. That's great. But, um, I never thought about it that way, but they were like, by the way, we're cancelled. So we're just going to create a show that basically... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, as you said, the show ran for one season, 19 episodes, and then had a resurgence in the US after being rerun from 93 to 97 started gaining this sort of cult status leading to a spin-off and almost 20 books continuing Marshall and Simon's adventures I didn't even know that did you not know that <laughs> I did not know that I'll uh, we'll have a look and see if your face is on any of the covers and then <laughs> cha-ching get some royalties um but when the show was cancelled how did you react or feel about that because I imagine when you're an adult actor and you're in a show that gets cancelled, you start thinking about things like, how am I going to pay the bills and the mortgage? I need to get another job. Whereas as a child actor, those things probably don't apply. So what thoughts do you have instead? Uh, You hit the nail on the head. I I, I don't really think those things applied. Back when I was working as a minor, I didn't really take the work seriously. And I I don't mind admitting that. I just kind of And maybe that's why I was booking jobs, because I didn't have that pressure, that stress on me. So I just kind of like, I was bummed that it was over because it was a nice paycheck every week. Mm. But at the same time, um, I was like, oh, well, and uh, just moving on, you know. Um, I really wanted to, as a child, to just kind of have that normal childhood and just have my like, you know, school friends, go out skateboarding and do what kids like to do and adventure. I don't think I was bummed or happy. I was just kind of neutral. And, um, well, I guess uh, auditioning for some new stuff. There was other things already in the works. So, um, no, it wasn't too bad. I think now, yeah, when you have those type of pressures, you're reliant on an income and uh, your paycheck and everything, then, yeah. And that's, you know, part of the reason why I think actors should get paid. Not actors, but people in general who do entertainment should get paid fairly because you never know when your next job is going to be. Yeah. And uh, it's just becoming more saturated, more competitive. I mean, that's one of the big reasons we had another strike or we, but SAG had another strike is like, Hey, look, a lot of time goes by and um, 
all of a sudden it's just the lake is dry and uh, <laughs> and you're not working for a while and you know that leads to all kinds of scary things within your personal life so yay for the negotiators yay um, <laughs> there's uh there's an urban legend of a lost episode of Erie Indiana where Marshall's sister Cindy wishes that she never had a brother and then suddenly no one recognizes Marshall and then Cindy becomes aware of all the weirdness in Erie can you finally settle whether this is true or not I cannot uh, <laughs> as far as as far as I know I don't remember anything of the nature but um you know I wouldn't be surprised let's just put it that way Let's give a shout out, obviously, to uh, Jose Rivera. Yes. You know, one of the writers and... Uh, Ralph Schaefer. Ralph. Did you say Ralph Schaefer? Was it Ralph? No, sorry. Carl Schaefer. Carl Schaefer. Thank you. I don't know I where like, I got Ralph from. Ralph? I don't know where I got Ralph I like, from. That doesn't Carl. sound right. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, those guys were brilliant. Obviously, they wrote every episode. So they are really part of the creative genius behind it all. So if you ever get a chance to talk to them, I think they can... They can verify that for you. Well, thanks for not clearing that up at all. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, folks. Or maybe it did happen and I'm just lying my teeth off here. No, I really don't know. Oh, now the internet will never be corrected and it will just continue the urban legend. It's uh, time to leave the nostalgia zone and enter what I like to call the latid zone, otherwise known as life after that thing I did. Okay. Genevieve here just wanted to quickly stop and say if you're a regular listener thank you for hitting that play button again and if this is your first time here welcome you have five whole seasons of nostalgia to catch up on so if you haven't already go and check out some of the episodes you may have missed and please do follow and subscribe it's totally free and if you'd like to support the show stick around at the end to find out how now back to the latted zone after eerie in 1993, you, as we mentioned, worked again with Joe on Matinee alongside John Goodman, as well as a film that has also gained somewhat cult status, Halloween favourite Hocus Pocus opposite Bette Midler, Sarah Jessica Parker and Thora Birch, which seems to have taken on a new life over the past 30 years, which is amazing for a movie that critics slated and sort of bombed at the box office by Disney standards. Uh, probably something to do with the genius who decided to release it in July. Uh, how, how is it for you seeing your 15-year-old self on TV practically every day in October every year? Um, Awful, I guess, because you said you yeah, like yeah. watching I, yourself I, on TV. <laughs> you know, I honestly, I don't think I saw the film for like 20 years. And then, yeah, I get bombarded, obviously, in October by all my friends, family, people I know. They're like, hey, guess what I'm watching? I'm like, Hmm. How many guesses do I get? <laughs> now I'm very like, I don't know. Now I, I kind of laugh and I think it's cool. And it's, it's like, wow, I got to experience that. But yeah, I think for a long time, I kind of was <laughs> like, uh, turn that off or I'll just be somewhere else. <laughs> I don't want to watch it right now. Um, it's really a trip how it's taken a life of its own. Uh, like you said, it flopped, it bombed. I don't think any one of us anticipated that it would become such a cult classic that it has. And um, lately, you know, I've been, like I said earlier, I've been traveling with um, some of the castmates to do these conventions. And there's been times where we've done screenings and done commentary with the film. And the more that I watch it, the more it tends to like resonate with me. It actually... I don't know. Like, I actually enjoy watching it now. Even when I come on, I'm like, hey, actually, you didn't do too bad. Maybe I'm just getting used to it, you know? But uh, it's, uh, it's quite a trip. I got, I got very lucky that I landed a few different things that really kind of are still lingering in the ether there. So, <laughs> Yeah, well, the love and affection for the film, especially in the US, has been so amazing. The, the cosplay, the pilgrimages to Salem to visit the film's locations. And as you said, you've been part of Hocus Pocus fan events and cast reunions. Um, and you have a Lego figure. You know you've made it when you have a Lego figure. I have a Lego figure. Yeah, actually, uh, well, I got invited last year 
to go do an autograph, uh, not a convention, just kind of like a meet and greet and a screening. Uh, it just so happened I met somebody on Instagram <laughs> who invited me to go out there. And then this year I said, what if I brought some of my castmates out? So we got heavily involved. I mean, it didn't quite happen like that. Jason Marsden, who played Binks. And Dash in Erie, Indiana. And Dash in Erie. It's crazy. That guy and me, our lives have just kind of like really intertwined. Like, I really feel like that guy was meant to be a part of my life because I've run into him randomly at the most random places at like Burning Man style events, music festivals, like weird, just places I would have never imagined running into Jason Marsden. So him and I are kind of feel like very similar in certain ways. But uh, he was like, after I got back from Salem last year, I said, I had such a great time. It was amazing. We should do something. A few months went by. Jason's like, I really want to do something. And we got together with a few Salemites, local people, amazing people. And uh, we put together this awesome event. It was our first year. We self-produced it. And uh, we had a great time. I feel like everybody involved had a great time. And now we're just you know, shooting for the stars for next year. And we really want to keep doing annual events there. And you convinced Thora to come as well. We convinced Thora to come. Yeah. You know what? Thora, she likes to keep her private life. I think it's it's really a blessing that uh, all of us are still very like humble, great people. And when we come together, we just have this magnetic relationship that it really just brings us back to that nostalgic time of our innocence and... Uh, you know, I think we're all just like really chill, good people. We're not like stuck up Hollywood snobs. <laughs> and uh, so I think Thor felt really comfortable just being like, okay, I got my crew there. So I think it'll be a good time. And overall, you know, we had some hiccups and whatever, just like any production might have. But uh, I would say we had uh, a really uh, successful event and a great time. And uh, I'm hoping all of us go next year and more. So we'll see. Salem is an amazing town if you've never been. I haven't. Um, maybe stay away in October because it's madness, <laughs> but it is such a great town. So uh, yeah, I'm excited for next year. I've had a few guests on the podcast who started acting in their youth and they've all talked about the difficult transition they experienced from child actor to adult actor like being dismissed by casting teams who only see you as a child star and inverted commas and not really being prepared for how hard it would be to get steady work after how did you negotiate it um well like i said i never really took the job seriously i just kind of i've always kind of been a go with the flow type of person so i don't know there was some point in my teenage life where I think I had some confusion, like I felt maybe I would continue to act sporadically. I just never really felt like it was my pursuit in life. So I wasn't very driven to be like, go, go, go. So for me, obviously, the transition, I was starting to feel the effects of it. But at the same time, I wasn't very ambitious or looking to the future, like how am I going to transition from child actor to an adult actor? But sure enough, I did experience that partially. And I saw it firsthand with other child actors and other people that were in my life. Mm. And um, it's very true. You're a complete different character. Your voice, your appearance, everything changes. And as a child actor, you don't have the life experience. So like you're kind of cast, kind of you're a child. So you're innocent. And um, that's kind of how that you're usually portrayed. So then when you become an adult and those kind of more challenging roles might come, because I think it's more competitive, a lot of people might not figure out how to transaction given lack of life experience and whatnot. So uh, lucky for me, I was already kind of tuned out. And uh, I was looking to go and experience life in a different manner. And so I, um, yeah, at some point I kind of said, I'm done. 
and I was probably around 17. I still had a few other jobs that I was doing some reoccurring stuff and, you know, they would call me to do this or do that, but I had already kind of checked out and said, oh, I want to go travel. I want to go see the world. I want to go experience different things in life. So with that mindset, I guess I didn't really have the harsh reality of transitioning from child to adult. But yeah, it's definitely tough. Uh, look how many people faded out. And what's funny is a lot of people are making resurgence now. They kind of, you didn't see them. They tried to work or they did, but they had to take whatever jobs they could. And now all of a sudden they're like back on the silver screen to some degree. Yeah, look at Ki Kwan, everything everywhere all at once, right? He won an Oscar. Yeah, yes, right? I don't even know what did he do from Indiana Jones and uh, Goonies. Stunt coordinator. There you go. <laughs> yeah. You know, but exactly like people kind of fade and now all of a sudden here they are. Oh, what did I see him in? Uh, oh, I saw him in Loki. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I was like, he's he's brilliant, you know, and it's sad. It's really sad because a lot of talented people just kind of get put uh, on the shelf and then it's probably fascinating to hear where their life experience went, especially when you still want to be in this industry, but the industry is just not taking you in. On your side. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, you know, it's very competitive. Everybody, or not everybody, many people want to be recognized for their talents, and they just don't get to showcase it. So um, I got lucky, I got to say, that I didn't want it. I didn't like fame. I didn't like being recognized. I kind of just wanted a more private, and I just wanted to experience life differently. Uh, but that came with its own challenges as well. I had to refine, I had to find myself. So I just said you decided to totally get away from the public eye. For the most part, until now. You didn't, <laughs> <laughs> you didn't want to be in it at all. So you went away, lived in the mountains for a bit, and you went to cosmetology school and became a hairdresser. I did. What drew you to that? And was it, was it just barbering or did you go whole hog with coloring and styling as well? I didn't do barbering. I did mainly coloring and styling. Okay. So back to what I was saying before, when I had to rediscover myself, I had to find myself, I ran out of money. All that money I made as a child actor, I was like, sweet, I, this is going to last me forever. No, sure enough, it did not. And um, Spend it. <laughs> I spent it all right. I spent it and I wouldn't take anything back. I wouldn't change any aspect of my life because I think part of growing and learning is you have to experience everything, all the downfalls and, you know, all the ups and downs, you have to experience it in order to really appreciate what you have. But I moved back to LA for all the wrong reasons. I wanted to get back into the business, make a quick buck so I can get the hell out again. Still here in LA 20 something years later, but I had to re, you know, I had to find my life out here and my best friend or one of my closest, dearest friends is a hairdresser. His dad's like a real famous hairdresser out here. Mm -hmm. I wasn't passionate about it. I was just looking for something, security, something I can work towards, something I can build upon. And I always kind of, you know, envied, not envied, but just looked at him and it looked like he had it all together. I was like, maybe I should go to cosmetology school. That'll give me some direction. And that actually was a very like life-changing moment for me because I was very lost trying to figure it all out. All I knew was growing up in the entertainment business, never had a job, never had to really deal with real life matters. And um, yeah, that was kind of, uh, that was that shifting moment where I was like, okay, I'm growing towards something. I can build upon something. I went to cosmetology school, got into that industry, has a lot of pros and cons. I didn't sign up to be a therapist, but sure enough, it, it comes with the territory. <laughs> I was going to ask, like, apparently more than half of women tell their hairdresser secrets they wouldn't tell anyone else. So did you just have people telling you, like, the deepest, darkest secrets all the time? Yes, yes. And, um, you know, I'm a people person, but I also have a threshold of where I'm like, okay, you're draining me. You're really draining me. I think a lot of people, no matter what, not everybody you can perform miracles with their head of hair. Um, <laughs> and they're, uh, you know, they're really there to just kind of talk and socialize. And um, sometimes I wasn't very... Um, Sympathetic? <laughs> uh, I was always sympathetic. I just wasn't always... Uh, yeah, it was just, it was personality clash, you know, 
where it's just like, okay, yeah, you, you only can care so much, you know? <laughs> um, a lot of people have first world problems and you're like, man, you still don't appreciate or realize how lucky you are. Um, so yeah, so I did that for about seven years, nine years. And then um, at the same time, I was uh, going to say, at the same time, you were doing something that you couldn't talk about. I could not talk about. But you can now. Oh, yeah. How how awesome is life now that I can talk about these things? <laughs> because you've been growing and cultivating cannabis for the past 20 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, since it's been legalized in California for sale, you now have a business, the Merry Danksters, mm -hmm. with a cultivation facility and some yep. award-winning strains. Oh. And I heard you say that you've jumped through hoops of fire to get to where you are. Can you elaborate a bit on that journey and why you're so passionate about the industry? Uh, I'm still stuck in those hoops of fire. It's been three years we've been trying to get a facility online, which has been a real nightmare dealing with the bureaucrats of the city and the state. Everybody just wants their pockets filled at the end of the day. So it's kind of sad. You know, there's such a culture that surrounds Cannabis. Cannabis has really influenced so many amazing creative cultures and its own culture that's kind of grown uh, within itself. And legalization has really benefited, you know, the mass public, but it's really kind of torn apart the culture and the industry, unfortunately. I feel like this is the road forward if you want to participate. I've always had a passion and a love for the plant. I didn't even think when I was young that I would be a cultivator. But once I discovered that, I was like, this is definitely something I want to put 180,000% into. And still till today, 20 years later, you know, it is uh, always fun, even when it gets really difficult because you're dealing with a living organism. And a lot of things are attracted to living organisms, including, you know, pathogens bugs, pests, all these different things. And those are challenges. Um, but at the same time, watching your garden thrive and grow and getting a lot of like remarkable feedback from people saying like, wow, you're really good at what you do, or this is amazing is, you know, the same as winning an award or just being recognized for whatever it is that you do. And especially if it's something that you put your blood, sweat and tears into, then you're just yeah, really appreciative. And I'm still, uh, yeah, I'm still super stoked that I'm involved, even though it's been challenging. And I don't, I'm not a scared of, a, I'm not scared of a challenge, but it gets frustrating. And I'm just really eager to be able to really push forward as soon as we uh, get through these hoops of fire. I, I kind of feel like it's going to be a tunnel of fire that uh, is going to be really hard to climb through, but uh, I don't care. I'm, I'm not scared to fail. So, I mean, I'm mostly ignorant to the cannabis industry and I imagine- It's still illegal in England. <laughs> it is, but, but um, I imagine because <laughs> of the nature of the business, there would be some challenges, but I had no idea about some things that other businesses take for granted are a challenge for you, like banking restrictions on cannabis companies so you can't get a normal bank account and you're forced to deal in cash only you can't get bank loans to finance future growth that must make things extra hard uh yeah uh, you basically hit the nail on the head it's very challenging um i personally and my partners feel the same way we don't want outside investors uh, we're not looking for venture capitalists so we're trying to fund this all on our own and uh, that's been extremely challenging, especially after COVID, when uh, inflation rates and the cost of goods and materials. Interest rates. That too. But like uh, the cost of goods, materials just to build have doubled, if not tripled. So when you put together a budget and then a year later, that budget is tripled, you're kind of like, wow, pretty scary stuff. Basically, my life savings you know, um, is being put into this because uh, that's just how passionate and how strongly I believe that we will be successful. And it's not just about the business. It's just like, this is something that me and my people are just like, this is our lifeblood. This is our livelihood. Again, we're not scared to admit that we're, you know, there's fear of uh, failure or losing our complete investment. But at the same time, you know, it's like, what do we got to lose? It's just money at the end of the day, and we will continue 
to grow, uh, pun intended, <laughs> regardless. Yeah, it is very challenging given all the restrictions. But, you know, we can see that things are changing slowly but surely. State lines will probably open up. Things will be federal here. Global, probably, you know, within the next 10 years, there's already some globalization. And uh, that's going to open up more outlets for us to, uh, you know, build a business. We're not in it for the money. I don't, you know, we, we want to obviously be able to provide and support ourselves. But at the same time, we just want to have fun doing it. And uh, growing weed is a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> One of the big criticisms of industry is that cultivation practices aren't very sustainable or environmentally friendly. It uses a lot of energy, especially when grown indoors. Mm -hmm. It needs a lot of water, which is a problem with water shortages in California, sure. um, potentially causing lower air quality. Uh, but then because it's still illegal at a federal level, it's not really possible to fund research on how to improve it and make it more sustainable, like in the way that the agriculture industry gets funding. So what measures if any, have you been taking to kind of minimize that impact, well, that environmental impact? You know, you got to remember that those costs get burdened on you. So it's really up to you. If you want to have a thriving business, you need to figure out how to economically lower your costs without lowering your quality and, uh, you know, figure out ways to profit based on that. And so, it's really beautiful because everybody is kind of on that same page and we take it upon ourselves to create practices and procedures to minimize a lot of those things. So just like any agriculture, this is literally agriculture. Maybe indoors we're using synthetic lights, but water is water. These plants do, I wouldn't say they drink more than any other type of agricultural plant and we don't waste anything in comparison. So if you have a plot of, let's just say you're growing lettuce outdoor, you just have these sprinklers going wild. Some people might, you know, actually set individual drippers where you can control the amount of feed that you're actually giving them. So we have already techniques. We've taken a lot of techniques from big ag and incorporated it into it. And a lot of different companies who are also trying to sell us products, like we used to use high pressure sodium lights, which are very energy intensive, are now we've reduced our energy costs in half because we're using LEDs, which are less power consuming and less heat radiant. So we don't need as much air conditioning to control them. So you know, the transition is happening regardless in all aspects of agriculture. And um, the one thing about indoor cultivation is you just have a lot more control, a lot more sterilization, so less risk of uh, losing crops. And uh, yeah, you can really just kind of like on a science level, create environments, unlike the outdoors where you're very limited. Um, there's a lot of greenhouse, there's a lot of beautiful techniques. And it's such a beautiful cultural industry where in the past, we didn't have a lot of knowledge that was out there. We had to keep our own communities. So we had these forums, you know, online that were very secretive and you would... Because you had to be underground, right? You had to be underground. Yeah. Yeah. For, I mean, I literally like came out from under a rock once it went legal because I had to, I just didn't want bad things to catch up to me. And I wanted to continue doing what I was doing and providing, you know, this medicine for people that had no access to it when they're just getting a bunch of pills pushed down their throat and have no other options and found relief in this. You know, at the end of the day, I know it's an industry and a culture and there's a lot of fun uh, behind it, but it also has so many medicinal values and it really benefits a lot of people. It also has uh, cons about it too. But at the end of the day, I think people really need to have those options and be able to choose for themselves. I saw you say last year that you were stoned a few times while making Hocus Pocus. Not a few times. <laughs> <laughs> More than a few times? Um, <laughs> Pretty much during the whole entire film. Yeah. <laughs> With hindsight, do you think maybe because of that and the fact that you run a cannabis company is why Disney didn't ask you to cameo in last year's sequel and maybe might scupper any chance of appearing in Hocus Pocus 3 because they don't want that. It's Disney family friendly, right? They don't want that negative association. Uh, well, they didn't bring anybody back in terms of like uh, the child characters. 
So I never really thought about it that way. Now that you've uh, kind of sparked a light bulb in my head, I'm like, oh, so I guess uh, I'm probably not going to be invited to do number three, which supposedly is in the works. You know, whatever. I can imagine the the, the parents up in arms, like, oh, having this person on who's doing illegal activity in my state, or, you know. I can see where the, the pitchforks might come for you. Well, you look if if you look at my character from that movie, it almost seems like he was just a stoner anyway, with all the tie dyes and my long hair and my California laid back attitude. So they uh, kind of coined on me that uh, hopefully it doesn't interfere, and hopefully <laughs> my decisions in life doesn't affect uh, other people getting work because of it. You know, I think. Um, I'd probably say 50% of Disney fans probably smoke weed anyway, and probably all the execs and their creative people. So um, they better jump on the gun or whatever. For me personally, I've left the business. If jobs want to come my way, great. If they don't, great. So uh, it really doesn't affect me and my life. But uh, it would be a bummer if that was the deciding factor of why not to include me or anybody else in the next uh, franchise. Um, I just wanted to touch on, you are Israeli and I'm not going to get political, but I just wanted to check, are all your family back home okay after recent events? Uh, Everybody is out of immediate danger as far as I know. And yeah, everybody seems fine. My sister just celebrated her birthday and she looked like she was uh, having a good time. So um, yeah, it's a scary thing and everybody's safe and uh, people and the world is a trip to say the least. You lived in Israel for a bit when you were younger. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw an interview you did on Israeli TV just as you started <laughs> on Dallas doing the interview in Hebrew. Are you still fluent or have you lost it as you've gotten older? Uh, I would say that I, I am still fluent. I don't practice enough. So like when I speak with my dad, I'll speak Hebrew or like my brother or sister, I'll try to speak Hebrew just to refresh my memory. But um, I would say I'm probably like, fluent still. My accent has gotten worse over the years. It's become more Americanized. And um, it's kind of weird when I go to Israel and I spend two weeks out there, which I haven't been in a long time, but when I spend two weeks and I speak only Hebrew, it all comes back to me. So yeah, still fluent, I would say. And uh, yeah, it it just kind of- Comes back to you. The more you practice, it comes back to you, yeah. It's like riding a bike, right? To some degree, yeah. <laughs> Just before we finish, um, I've heard you say previously that you know, you, you've had your 15 minutes of fame now and you're not bothered about chasing it again. And as you mentioned, in the past couple of years, you've joined the fan convention circuit. So after being away from the spotlight for so long, how have you found being in it again, getting recognized and people wanting a piece of you effectively? Uh, at first I was traumatized, but I, uh, kind of swallowed that pill just because you kind of condition yourself. And when you're doing the things that I was doing and really staying under the radar and out of the spotlight and really not letting people know who you are or whatever, which is great. That's another benefit from child actor to adult is you change and nobody recognizes you. So I'm like, thank you, Lord. (laughs) But now I embrace it, and um, I've always been proud of what I did in the past, but never really glorified myself in any way. I get to travel a lot with Jason Marsden and Vanessa Shaw. We do a lot of these together, pretty much all of them together. So that just makes it even more like fun, yeah, and accepting and just great. Like I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm back in my. Uh, I feel like I'm in a very comfortable place when we do these conventions and when I get praise. I don't know. Lucky for me, I can be very open about who I am. So when I talk to people and, you know, I get it, like to them, they kind of can worship you in a certain sense because they know you from screen and whatever you've provided them. But like at the same time, I can just talk to them and I'm a very people person and I'm very grounded and I've had ups and downs. I've had life experience. I, 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 you know... A lot of people think that all Hollywood celebrities just have this glorified, amazing life and we're popping bottles and sitting in uh, limos and wearing tuxedos all the time, but that's not the case. And um, it's been great to say the least, and I I enjoy it. So given that you were a lot of people's first crush in the 90s, (laughs) 
how has it been meeting some of those now adult lustful teenagers are they like a little bit giggly and bashful when they meet you now they are but uh i love seeing their their uh i love seeing their look of disappointment like oh you were so cute when you were young it's kind of like saying uh oh you look so great for your age you know (laughs) but uh it's a little odd, I guess, but at the same time, you know, most of these people are my age or a little bit younger, so it's not that odd. I don't know. Yeah, I'm going to say it's very 50-50 when somebody says, oh, you were my first crush, because I do blush, obviously, from it, but at the same time, it's like, okay, yeah, cool, awesome, I- I'm uh, I'm glad I was there for you. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's been brilliant talking with it's you. It's a pleasure. I appreciate you don't do too many interviews. So thanks so much. Yeah. Uh, you know, I just picked your name out of the hat and was like, oh, I guess you're uh, you're going to be one of my five interviews for the year. So <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, it was a pleasure. I really appreciate it. I'm glad, uh, I'm glad we got to talk. Maybe we can see you at a UK con next year. Yes. Uh, I had a couple opportunities that uh, didn't work out, especially with COVID and everything. It was uh, kind of wonky and weird um, getting that all together. But uh, we got things in the works and uh, I get hit up all the time to come to the UK. So I would love nothing more. Well, when you come over, give me a shout. We'll have a... We'll have tea and crumpets. <laughs> exactly. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Omri. Awesome. Thank you, Genevieve. Huge thanks again to Omri for joining me for the chat. It was great fun. You can find out more about Omri's business and pick up some merch at the MerryDanksters.store. And if all this has made you want to re-watch Eerie Indiana, if you're in the US, you can stream it free via Amazon's Freevee. And if you're in the rest of the world and handy with a VPN, I'm sure you can make it work too. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Celebrity Catch Up. As I always say, I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from, so thank you so much for choosing this one. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. It's totally free. And if you'd like to support the show to keep the lights on, visit celebritycatchup.com where you can donate. It's always nice to get a five-star rating or review. And also people are more likely to listen if someone else says it's worth it. So please do that on your podcast platform of choice. It would totally make my day. And please follow on social media and share the pod so others can discover and listen too. Just search for Celebrity Catch Up and you'll find me. Until next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>